chapter 46, Isaiah 46, um, we are going to be looking at uh, the question that we looked at a couple weeks ago. Now, what we generally would be doing today is we, would, we should be starting a new question, but there was one week where we got sort of out of sync and the kids, uh, I forget what happened, we didn't have it with the kids, but we had it here uh, with the adults. And so because we were out of sync that one particular week, uh, we, we got sort of ahead of the kids. So to sort of catch us back up again, uh, I'm going to spend another week on the question that uh, Rob had covered two weeks ago. And that question has to do with how good is God? And again, we're, we're looking at these, uh, at these um, questions, these catechism questions that are seeking to teach us about who God is. And so uh, what Rob really focused on was the first part of this answer, God is holy. And of course, the verse that goes along with this question is Isaiah 6, 3b where Isaiah sees God high and lifted up. He sees him in heaven, and, he, and we see the seraphim flying, or the cherubim flying around him and saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And, of course, the holiness of God is, is oftentimes described as his essential, the quintessential, the, the very basic defining aspect of who God is is that he is holy. But the answer to how good is God includes more than just his holiness. His holiness is effective around all these other things, but there are other things that the answer focuses on, and that's the very last thing that I want us to consider this evening. So how good is God? God is holy. He is perfectly good, perfectly pure. And then it's this last statement that I want us to spend time looking in Isaiah 46 at the reality that God is perfectly committed to his glory. God is perfectly committed to his glory. Now, I was uh, watching a video of a, a guy who was evangelizing on a college campus, and it was sort of the format, perhaps you've seen this before, uh, where he'll take questions from a group of students that are around him on this college campus. And so there was one young man there that was at the college who was asking him a question, and he said, I don't, this man said, I don't want to go to heaven. Well, he didn't say he wanted to go to hell, but he said, I don't want to go to heaven. And the reason he said he didn't want to go there is that for him, the prospect of living forever was terrifying. He went on to describe why that was. He said, it was terrifying for him to think that for all of eternity, all he's going to be doing is bowing down and praising and glorifying God forever. For him, he viewed it as a negative thing. He said, how can that be a good thing that I'm going to spend my entire life praising God? Isn't that, and then this is the term that he used, isn't that quite narcissistic of God? That he would want us to spend all of eternity praising him. Maybe, have, has many of you heard someone make that same point again? Like, why, why would we praise God? Isn't, I mean, and if we think about it from the perspective of ourselves, I mean, is it, would, would it be right for any of us to say that my greatest passion is to, per, is to be perfectly committed to my own glory? I mean, if we were to look at that from a human perspective, we wouldn't accept that as a legitimate way of going about life. And so this idea, this charge that's made that God is 
narcissistic, that he's only concerned with his own glory and only concerned with advancing his, that which benefits him, is a common charge that we hear today. So that's why I wanted to zero in on this last statement in this, question, or in this answer. God is perfectly committed to his own glory. And even if, if we understand that idea, of course, that narcissism and, and seeking our own glory is sinful, then actually doesn't it upend the entire question? Because this question, or the entire answer, because the answer begins with God is what? Holy. And if God is holy, then he has to be perfectly separate, obviously from everything that he's created, but it also primarily means he's separate from what? If God is holy, that means he's separate from what? Sin. And isn't it a sin to seek your own glory, to be prideful? So what do we do here? Do we throw out this question? I mean, is God a narcissist? Boy, is God a narcissist? No. Okay, let's get that very, very clearly described here. But yet, how can, we, how can we say he's not a narcissist and yet speak of him being perfectly committed to his own glory? And that's what I want us to consider today, particularly from Isaiah 46. And what we're going to learn today from Isaiah 46 is that God's passion for his glory, that actually provides for our greatest good. That if we are going to seek that which is good, it is going to be found in knowing and extolling and seeing the glory of God. And that when God pursues perfectly his own glory, he is actually pursuing that which brings about the greatest good for us. There is nothing greater than the goodness of God seen in his glory. And so it's not a matter of him being narcissistic. Rather, it is a matter of him pursuing that which brings about the best for his entire creation. And that's what we're going to see in Isaiah chapter 46. So Isaiah 46, we're looking at God's passion for his glory. Look with me. We're going to read the whole passage, and we're going to work our way through uh, this verse by verse. Now, Isaiah is writing to the exiles of Israel. He's writing to them in particular as they are under the Babylonian captivity. And as they're underneath that Babylonian captivity, they're languishing, they're, they're facing all sorts of difficulties, and Isaiah comes with a great message. His entire, gospel, or his entire book is really the gospel in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 46, he begins by focusing on the false gods of the Babylonians and then calls us to find hope in the one true glorious God. Isaiah 46, verse 1, Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. The things, these things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me. O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, 
Even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, I will carry, and will save. To whom will you liken me, and make me equal, and compare me, that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse, and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. And they fall down and worship. They lift it on their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer. Or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressor. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, The man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Listen to me. You stubborn of heart. You who are far from righteousness. I am. Bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel. And then notice what he describes Israel as. My what? My glory. What this passage shows us is how God's passion for his glory is worked out to bring about our greatest good. And he does this by showing really there are two paths. There are two ways that we can go in this life. In fact, throughout the scriptures, there is often this description of two ways. We see it as the law was given to Israel. And there are blessings and curses given in the law. Blessings for those who follow the law and everything that's written in it. And curses for those who reject the law and turn away from the Lord. We see it in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, particularly in Psalm 1. There's a path that you can walk where you turn away from the way of sinners and you don't sit in the seat of the scornful and and you don't walk with the transgressors, but rather you delight yourself in the Lord. And then in Psalm 2, we see the other path that seeks to cast off allegiance to God and worship to Him. And God sits in heaven laughing at those who try to do this because His judgment will come upon them. And so here Isaiah, speaking the voice of God to Israel, comes to Israel and says, Look, you have been living in a land that has been worshiping foreign gods. And your temptation is going to be to want to be like those nations, to want to follow those gods. Let me explain to you the glory of the true God. And then let me show you how little glory or no glory the idols of this world have. And so he begins by focusing on the empty glory of 
the gods. He focuses on the empty glory of the gods. We see this in verses 1 and 2 and verses 5 and 7. He begins by speaking of two particular gods, Bel bows down and Nebo stoops. So those are the two deities that he mentions here. These are referring to the primary Babylonian deities. Now, one of the things we have to recognize that was different about the nations around Israel and Israel itself is Israel was monotheistic, which means one God, while the nations around Israel were polytheistic. They believed in many different gods. And in particular, they had as their chief gods, Bel and Nebo. Bel, which is referred to here, likely is referring to Bel Marduk. Bel Marduk was the supreme god of the Babylonians. He was the one who had power and strength. Babylon would look and pray to Bel Marduk when they would go out to battle. They would look to him to be the one who would bring victory for the Babylonians. Nebo, or Nabu, was the son of Bel Marduk. And he was the god of wisdom. He was the god of writing. He was the god of interpretation. And so God specifically comes down and says, these are the gods of the Babylonians, the one who has power and the one who has wisdom. And here's the thing. Power without wisdom brings about destruction. Wisdom without power brings about uselessness. So both of those things were necessary for a god or the gods to actually accomplish anything. And what does God say about these two deities? They bow down and they stoop. The idea here is that Bel is collapsing. This bow down idea is that he is, he is overwhelmed by what he is being asked to do. That the, that the charger, the prayers of the Babylonians asking him to bring victories is too much for him. He can't handle it, and he's crumbling under the weight. Speaks of how Nebo is stooping down. The God of wisdom here is found to be without wisdom. Essentially, this first phrase in the first verse is showing that the things that they look to these gods to provide, they don't have. They're falling underneath them. And so they are brought down. They do not have the glory or the power that God has. Now, why is that? Isaiah reminds us as to why this is the case. Did Bel or Nebo exist from eternity past? Where did Bel and Nebo come from? From men. And so he shows, no wonder they're brought down because they've been created. He speaks particularly in verses 5 and 7 about this reality. He says, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? So God is saying, you're comparing me to these other gods, these gods that, let's talk about them. Let's talk about where these gods came from. And what, what essentially happens is they come and, and they take and, and bring the finest artisans in the land. And they bring the goldsmiths. They bring the, 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 those who work well with wood. And, and they tell them, say, make us a god. And so they lavish this gold on these idol makers from the purse. They weigh out silver in the scales. They get the goldsmith. And he comes and he makes this gold and silver into a god. Now, there's a real problem with that statement. He makes a God. 
That's always been the problem with idolatry. Because ultimately, if you made your God, who is the most powerful person in your own life? Who's the one who guides and directs your life? It's not your God, it's yourself. It's you. So he makes it into a God, and then what do people do? In their foolishness, they fall down and they worship that God. In fact, these gods that are crumbling underneath the weight of what Babylon is asking them to do, they're not only just created, but they actually provide or cause burdens to be carried upon those who worship them. He says in, in verse 1, their idols are beasts on livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. So the idea here is Babylon and the Babylonians are looking to these gods and they're saying, we need you to carry us into battle. But yet they take these idols and they carry them into battle. And in fact, it's wearisome for the the. The donkeys, it's wearisome for the horses that these beasts of burden that are carrying these things, they're weighed down by these gods. So that the Babylonians and all who would worship Bel and would worship Nebo are burdened down by these empty gods. What we find then in verse 2 is the reality they cannot carry. It says, they stoop, they bow down together, they cannot save the burden. They are unable to bear up underneath what they've been called to do. They are unable to provide salvation to those who look to them. And they cannot carry, they cannot save. We see in verse 2 that they themselves go into captivity. There, and Isaiah is going to speak of a day when Babylon is going to be conquered. And all the gods of Babylon, Bel and Nebo, they're going to be nothing. Before we read this today, how many of you have heard of Bel Marduk? Anybody? What about Nebo, his son, the god of, I mean, besides the fact that you drive by on 79, the Mount Nebo exit, all right? You've never heard of these guys. You, you, read, you come across this and you read it in, in Scripture and you're probably like, who are those guys? I don't know anything about them. They cannot save. And so we see in verse 7, this reality brought very clearly to the forefront. These idols are lifted on their shoulders. They carry it. They set the idol in its place. Does the idol move? No. It cannot move from its place. They cry out to it. Save us. Does the idol answer them? No. They are only burdens. And they cannot save those who cry out to them from, for, from their trouble. This is what pursuing glory that is not God's brings about. There's a great contrast that Isaiah is going to make here in this passage. And one of those things is that if you seek the glory of anything else but God, you only bring about failure. Because these gods do not exist. 
Sure, you can fashion them. You can put them together. You can lay them on a mantle. You can bow down to it. But they cannot move. They cannot answer. They cannot save. We live in a world that is filled with the empty glory of these gods. We don't perhaps call them Bel or Nebo. We call them progress. We call them human intuition and inventiveness. Today we call it AI. We look to all these things that we have produced as the thing that's going to save us. And really, in some ways, all that has changed between thousands of years ago in Babylon and today is that we don't try to hide our, our prideful arrogance behind a shroud of some idol or some statue. We say, we're it. We look to ourselves and we act as though we are the ones who are going to be glorious and bring about salvation and bring about change and, and fix the world. And we've been doing that for millennia. And are we any better? No. And so we continue today to pursue the empty glory of the gods, except we have placed ourselves in the roles of the gods. God is so different. God is so different. It, in fact, when, when it talks about in verse 2 about these idols going down into captivity, it reminded me of, a, of an incident from Israel's history when the Ark of the Covenant was captured and taken to, to, the, to uh, the Philistines. And the Philistines sat this Ark of the Covenant in the temple to their god, Dagon. And here we have this, of course, the Philistines thought, well, we've captured the Israelites' gods because God would inhabit the Ark of the Covenant. His presence would hover over it. The reality is that that Ark was not the God, was not God. It was rather that God chose to dwell with his people there. So you can't just take physically and take God into Philistia and think that that's going to now bring him there. But he did show his reality to the Philistines. When they came back that first night, what had happened to Dagon? He had fallen down on his face in front of the ark. Well, so what is, and there's this, this it's almost comical the way that the writer uh, writes it. He says they have to prop their God back up. They put him back up there. And they say, okay, it must, must have been a freak accident or whatever. They come in the next day, and what has happened to Dagon? His hands and his head have been chopped off. Who's the real God there? The true God of Israel. And so what did they do? And it's amazing here. God didn't have to make the Ark of the Covenant somehow magically fly back to Israel what did the Philistines do? They stuck it in a cart and they said, take it back. And they sent the ark back to God's people. That's our God. He's not like the gods of the heathens. He's not like the gods of our imagination. Their glory is empty. His 
glory is real. So what do we see from that glory of God? Well, we see in verses 3 through 4 the loving care of the Lord. If God is not like these other gods, then what does his glory do? How does he reveal it? How does he show it? And it's interesting here. This passage is one of the most well-known passages that speak of the omnipotent, sovereign providence of God over all things. But that's not what he leads with first. What does God say his glory is used primarily to do when we see it is shown to care for his people? Look at verse 3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob. All the remnant of the house of Israel. There's something to be said about God calling his people to listen to him. We need to listen to God. When he speaks, our ears need to perk up whether that's in our interaction with his word in our daily times, whether it's where we come to services, whether it's Sundays or whether it's other times where we're listening to preachers online. Nonetheless, when the word of God is spoken, we need to listen because our propensity is to not listen. Israel's history is one of them not listening to the word of the Lord and going after these foreign gods who have no glory. And what happens is we will read these stories and we will laugh and say how ridiculous it is that Israel did that. But then we'll walk right out of this place and we'll do the same things ourselves. So we need to listen to the Lord. It's so important. We can either listen to the voices of the world around us or we can listen to the voice of the Lord. And what is it that God reminds us or calls us to listen to he reminds us that he is the one who has made us now in particular he's referring to israel and how he has made israel a nation look at what he says the people who he's talking to are those who were born by him before they were born so born as in carried before they were created or came into existence We see here the great sovereign electing power of God on display here. Listen, God did not choose Abraham because he was mightier, because he was cleverer, because he was more powerful. God chose Abraham because it was his pleasure to do so. And so the, the, the same principle continues for us today. God's elect in Christ, he chose us, not because of who we are, but because his grace brought him to that point. His glory brought him to save his people. And see, if it was about us, then it would be about our glory. And so he is the one who carries us before we're born. How he carries us then after we're born, carried from the womb Even to your old age, I am he. To gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. 
fact, what we find is this, this idea of carrying or bearing or, or bringing us through is a clear contrast with the gods of Bel and Nebo. What did the Babylonians have to do with their gods? Who, they carried their gods. And Yahweh, Israel's God, is so different. He carries them. He carries them. The contrast is stark here. The gods of the Babylonians are being crushed and crumbling underneath the weight of what Babylon is, is saying. They need to be saved themselves. Yahweh is the one who saves. No one needs to save the Lord. And so there is a great show of the glory of God in that reality. He created his people and he carries his people. And then we see this God who lovingly cares for his people. He is a God whose glory is unmatched in his sovereignty. We see this in verses 8 through 11. He has unmatched sovereignty. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Again, what is God saying? He says, listen to me. And now in verse 8, he's calling us as we're listening to him to remember in fact, you're going to see, listen to me, brought up again. Do you think God wants us to pay attention here to what he's saying? Remember this and stand firm in it. Why is he challenging us to do this? Why is he calling us to recall it to mind? Because we are what? What does he label us as here? You transgressors. What we see here is that there is a reality found within us that we are those who are rebels against the sovereignty of God. We don't want his reign. We want to cast it off. Who, who do we want to reign? Ourselves. And so when he calls us transgressors, he's calling us rebels. He's pointing out the fact that we want to live independent of his glory. We don't want God to be glorious. We want who to be glorious? Ourselves. In fact, what does Paul tell us that we fall short of in Romans 3.23? For all have sinned, all are transgressors, and fall short of what? The glory of God. And so God comes and he says, listen, you transgressors, I want you to remember something. I'm the only God that is. I am God and there is no other God. They don't exist. When we begin to seek other gods or when we imagine God to be something that he is not, that those gods do not exist. There's only one God. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. And so God holds unmatched sovereignty. He has the right to act as he pleases in his creation. Did anyone else create the universe and everything that is in it? So does anyone else have the right to act with what he has created? No. 
Do we have the right to act in our own lives however we want to? No. There's only one God. And he does not share his glory with another. That unmatched sovereignty is seen in his eternal decrees. In verse 10, he speaks about how he declares the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. When he speaks of God declaring the end from the beginning, the ancient times, from ancient times, declaring things not yet done, essentially he's saying the whole package, I'm working it out. I know what's going to happen. Do you know what's going to happen tomorrow? Does anyone here know what's going to happen tomorrow? God does. And he's known what's going to happen tomorrow from eternity past. He's known it all. And he's decreed it to happen exactly according to his plan. Now, I, I confess, I don't understand how that all works out with all the, all the intricacies of, of the problem of evil that we talk about. And there are good explanations, but some of them still leave some wants, things wanting. How that coincides with the idea of human responsibility that God holds us responsible for our actions. This, all I can say is this is what God's word says, and it also says that we're responsible. They're compatible. Can I figure it out? No. Why? I'm not God. And neither are you. But I do know that he is a God who has such power and glory that he has eternally decreed the end from the beginning. Before he spoke, let there be light, he knew exactly what you would be doing at 722 on Wednesday evening, May 31st. He knew what, was going, what would be going through your head right now, thinking, well, we only have eight more minutes, and it seems like Pastor Phil is just getting warmed up, so we're going to go longer than that. I'm just kidding. He knew all that. And not only has he decreed those things, his decrees are certain. Look at the end of verse 10. My counsel may stand my counsel will stand so long as my people obey what i'm saying my counsel will stand um, so long as i you know so long as as someone responds the right way is that what he says my counsel what shall stand it's not a question that's what one of the great things about the book of revelation is that it tells us what god has intended from the beginning Who wins? Jesus wins. And it's been like that from the moment Adam and Eve fell into sin. And before. Jesus wins. His counsel will stand. I will accomplish most of my purposes. I'll I'll accomplish the majority of. 95%? Is that what he says? How much of God's purpose will be accomplished? All of it. All of it. We just, I don't know if anybody saw this recently, um, but we, there was, I just said we just, we didn't do this. We're, we're 
red-blooded Americans. We cast off the monarchy in England, but they recently crowned a king in England. And if we think about glorious monarchies in the world today, probably we think of the English monarch as one that has pomp and circumstance. We talk about the, the, the king's jewels now and all the, the, the carriages, how they're overlaid with gold and just, just all this glory that the king has. Does he have this type of power? Does King Charles have this type of power? Does he have anything close to this type of power? Has any human king ever had anything near this power? Where they could come up and say, this is what I say, and then it would definitely come to pass. No. No king among men has had that power. No king among men has that type of glory. But our God does. He will accomplish his purposes. In particular, in verse 11, speaking of the calling of a bird from the east and a man of his counsel from a far country, he's referring to the fact that, and this is a hopeful thing for Israel, that Babylon will fall. The bird from the east is an invading, um, invading group coming and they'll take down the Babylonian empire. And then he reiterates again, I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. You know, one of the things that, that drives us to remember and to listen to what God has said is because he has spoken. And when God says something, it will come to pass. He's purposed and he will do it. So what is the primary thing that God has purposed to do? And that's where we see the end of this passage bringing about this conclusion that God's passion for his glory brings about our greatest good because we see the redemptive glory of the Lord in verses 12 and 13. The first thing we see is the need for redemption. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. And once again, God does not he does not uh, couch his views of who we are. He's very clear here. We, he's called us already. Um, uh, what has he called us already? Transgressors. He's now getting more intense. Not only are we transgressors, but we're stubborn in our transgression. We like to continue to go our own way. Like dumb little sheep. And our stubbornness in heart has taken us far from what? From righteousness. Why is that important? Why is the righteousness of God brought up here? I'd like to suggest to you that one of the things that Isaiah is bringing out here, particularly as he speaks about Israel as his glory, is that God's righteousness is the quintessential aspect of his glory. So that his righteousness and his glory are the same thing. How can I say this? Well, the scripture bears this out. Isaiah 58.8. Isaiah is actually speaking of how God is going to protect Israel. 
And one of the things he's going to do is that there's going to be light that will break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. And then he speaks of how your righteousness will go before you, and then behind you in your rear guard, the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. The righteousness and the glory of God are spoken of as encompassing Israel to protect them. They're the same thing. We see this in Romans 3. God's righteousness has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith. In who? In Jesus Christ for all who believed. For there is no distinction. Why do we need righteousness? Why do we need what what the Puritans called and what the theologians called alien righteousness? A righteousness not our own. Why do we need that? Because we fall short of, and Paul does not say the righteousness of God, although that's implied. He says we fall short of what? The glory of God. And the psalmist even equates them in Psalm 97, 6 through 7. The heavens proclaim, and we think of Psalm 19. And what does Psalm 19 tell us? The heavens declare what? The glory of God. But what does the psalmist say here? The heavens proclaim his righteousness. And all the people see his what? His glory. You see, they're the same thing. And then notice what the psalmist says. Why would you worship an image? Why would you go to an idol? You're a fool for doing that. They don't have righteousness in themselves. They don't have glory. They'll only put you to shame. They're worthless. You boast in these worthless idols. Those who do this worship him. And so when he comes, when Isaiah comes and he's and God is speaking through Isaiah to Israel, this stubborn nation who is stubborn of heart, they are far from God's righteousness. They're far from his glory. They want to pursue their own glory. They want to go their own way. And so there is great need. But what is the path? Of redemption. But verse 13. I bring near my what? My righteousness. It is not far off. And my salvation will not delay. The Lord has promised to save. What's amazing here is, again, the contrast between the idols of Babylon. Babylon cried out to to Bel. They cried out to Nebo. Could they save them? But those who cry out to the Lord, he brings his righteousness near to those who are far from it. This is the way in which He brings hope. It is not through seeking our own glory, but rather through seeking the glory of Christ. 
that we find hope. That we find salvation that does not delay. So he says, I will put salvation in Zion. While the application of this passage is specifically focused on Israel in captivity, the broader principle refers to that which is a spiritual Zion, all those in God, of God's people, Old and New Testament. What is the thing that brings us and unites us all together? It is the glory of God. His glory makes a nation. So that the goal of that redemption would be Israel, my glory. How can that be? Because didn't, didn't we talk about earlier that God says he does not share his glory with anyone? How can he then refer to Israel as his glory? Because in Christ, he has given Israel, all those who turn to Christ in faith, he has given them his righteousness so that they would be and possess the glory of God. When Paul says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, for those who have attained to Christ in faith, do you realize they no longer fall short of the glory of God? That is our great hope. That is what Isaiah is driving home about God. It is the imputation of his righteousness, the bringing near of the righteousness to God's people that brings salvation. This is why God is passionate for his glory. Because it is the only thing, it is the only thing that brings salvation. So how good is God? He is holy. He is perfectly good. He is perfectly pure. And he is good because he is perfectly committed to his glory. It's not narcissism. It's love. It's care and concern for his people that they would be able to dwell with him forever. We, Zion, are his glory. The ones who have been declared righteous, declared to possess God's glory through faith in Christ. And to diminish the glory of God is to only bring Shame. If we would like to live our lives for our own glories, go ahead. It's not going to bring you anything good. It's only going to bring disaster and destruction. You may not be bowing down to Bell or Nebo, but if you're bowing down to your own glory, to your own self, you're going to crumble underneath the pressure of the salvation you're trying to earn yourself. God is passionate for his glory. 
because his glory brings about our greatest good. So what does this mean for us? What should be our greatest passion? The glory of God. That should be our greatest passion. In fact, in seeking his glory, we are pursuing our own greatest good. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way. What are we here for? What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. You see how the two are linked? That the joy of this life is only found in pursuing the glory of God. That's what we're made for. Oh, how good our God is. May we pursue that goodness as we pursue his glory. Let's pray. Father, you are always good and you are only good. Thank you for your passion for your glory. It is the only means of good for us. Father, renew within us today a holy fire to pursue your glory and thus to find true joy, true satisfaction, true purpose for why we have been created. Father, take your word, apply it to our hearts. May we go from this place considering these truths and may we live them out. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us online. Thanks for joining us here in person. Have a great week.